0: As we're continuing our verse by verse study through the Gospel of John. Once again, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which he, took, he did this was a Sabbath. Well, may God bless us as we, as we study his word today. And uh, as I've done several times during this John Message series, uh, I've shown a few clips from the Chosen series that I thought were particularly good that could help us wrap our minds around what's going on in the passage we're looking at on a certain Sunday. So I did find a clip that I think is particularly good today, the healing of the man at the pool. So at the end of chapter four, yeah, go ahead. The end of chapter four, Jesus had just healed that royal official's son in the town of Cana in Galilee. And At the top of chapter 5, John tells us that sometime later that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Which feast was it? John doesn't tell us. We know a period of time has passed. It could have been six months or so since that healing in chapter 4. It could have been as long as a year, but a certain amount of time passes. And then in verse 2 we read, Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, in which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. This past week I had to consult Google Images because I forgot what a colonnade looks like. How many of you immediately have pop in your mind what a colonnade looks like? Most of us don't. And so here's what a colonnade looks like. It was a very common architectural feature in Greek and uh, in Roman building. And so basically a colonnade is a sort of patio area or bridge that's lined by rows of columns equal distance from each other that hold up some sort of roof structure. And so it says this particular pool at Bethesda was surrounded by five covered Colonnades, And so it probably looks something like this. This is an architectural rendering of what this pool looked like if you go to the next slide. And so this is what we believe Bethesda looked like. You can see the outer walls of the temple up on the upper side of the photo down below would be those five colored covered colonnades that uh, surrounded architects have discovered actually two pools two pools there at Bethesda. And so there were these covered colonnades on all four sides, and then one that went down the middle, that fifth colonnade, separated those two pools. And so this man, along with many other sick people, used to gather there on the patio area, uh, there on the, the deck of that pool underneath uh, these roof structures in the colonnades, and they would hang out by the pool of water says Bethesda was what it was called. Bethesda is an interesting word. Bethesda is kind of a play on words in Aramaic. It means house of outpouring, but it also means house of mercy and grace. Now, I want you to keep that second definition in mind. House of mercy and grace. Say that with me. House of mercy and grace. According to verse 3, around this house of mercy pool... There was a great number of disabled people who used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And that begs the question, why? Why would they be hanging out poolside around this specific pool, Bethesda, outside of the temple walls? It's a good question, right? And the answer to that question can be found in verse 4. So look in your Bibles for verse 4. Most of you will be looking for a really long time because verse 4 isn't there. You notice in your translation, it probably skips from verse 3 to verse 5. You notice that? Why is that? Well, the reason is, as most of you know, any ancient book, we don't have the original manuscript that was written, that first copy that was written. What we have are copies that were written at some time later. And so whether it's Homer's Iliad or Odyssey or any other ancient book, we don't have the original manuscripts, so we work off of copies. And so the New Testament, we have thousands of manuscripts, not the originals, but thousands. Some of those date within 150 years of the original writing, which for an ancient document is unprecedented. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, there's something like a 1,000 years removed from the original writing, the latest, the earliest copy we have. The New Testament has thousands of copies. Some of them are as much as 500 to 800 years removed from the original writing. So, what you have there in your Bible, is it relying mostly on the earliest manuscripts or the ones that are the furthest removed from the original writing? The answer is, we rely on the earliest, right? And so, when you have a translation, you can know that that is a good translation because those who translated that leaned on the earliest and most time-tested manuscripts. And so when we look at this passage in the earliest and most time-tested manuscripts, verse 4 is missing. And so we're pretty confident that what happened a few hundred years after John wrote this gospel account, people had no idea because by that point the Jerusalem temple had already been destroyed for several hundred years. They had no idea why all these sick people were gathered at the pool. And so a scribe went in and he inserted this little footnote, and put it as verse 4 that explains why this particular man and all these other sick people were gathered at the pool. So you look at the bottom of that page of your Bible, you'll probably find a footnote that includes verse 4. So that we get the idea of how this footnote helps, let me read verse 3, which is Scripture, back to back with verse 4 that isn't Scripture but is a helpful footnote. Here's how it reads, verse 3 and verse 4 together. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. Isn't that interesting? Huh, that helps us understand why this particular man was hanging out by the poolside day After day, after day, these people believed there was healing in the water, especially when that water bubbled up and was stirred. They believed the first person into that pool when it was stirred up would be healed of whatever disease or illness they had. Now, what we know today that they didn't know back then is that these pools of Bethesda were fed by an underground spring. And once in a while, that underground spring would bubble up, causing the water of the pool to ripple and bubble up also. And so, we know that that was just a natural phenomenon of an underground spring, but they thought an angel was coming down and swimming in the water and stirring it up. So, it really was more wives' tale and more legend than anything else. Now, was anyone ever healed at that pool? Probably. Some people may have just been naturally healed as time passed because God put within our bodies the ability to heal of many things that afflict us. And then there were times probably when God performed a miracle and healed someone because they in faith trusted in God. We know that God is a God who hears and answers prayers of faith. Amen? And so some people certainly over the centuries were healed, but these people believed this angel legend. And when you think of that angel legend, that, Seems a bit sad to me because this was called the house of mercy and grace. But would you call that mercy and grace if you have to be the fastest sick guy at the pool to get healed? What do you call the fastest sick guy at the pool? You call him the most healthy sick guy at the pool, probably, don't you? Usually it's the healthiest guy who's the fastest. And usually it's the healthiest guy that's going to get in the water first. Blind guys weren't making it into the water first. They didn't even see the water bubble up. And certainly those like this crippled man couldn't get in there first because their legs didn't work. Everyone else was faster. It's kind of like, what do you call the least sick patient in a crowded hospital? The least sick patient in a hospital that's crowded. You call him discharged. Right? You call him discharged because the nurses are trying to identify the guy who is least sick. Get him out of here because we need his bed for someone that needs it a lot more than he does, right? You're not well, but you're well enough to go home. Get out of here. We need your bed. And that's routine in hospitals that are crowded. They save the beds for the sickest patients. This poor fellow, he never got it into the pool. He maybe needed it more than anyone else that was poolside, but he never got that healing. He never got that healing because he just wasn't quick enough. And so he thought there was no hope for him. According to verses 5 and 6, he had been an invalid for 38 years. In all likelihood, this man was paralyzed from the waist down. He had no use of his legs. At a time when most men didn't live past the age of 40, this man, in his mind, had been paralyzed for a lifetime. Jesus walked up to the man asks him a question. It's a simple question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? At first glance, Jesus' question sounds rather patronizing. If the crippled man here in John 5 had been as snarky as the woman at the well in the prior chapter, he might have given Jesus a sarcastic answer. Do I want to get No, I don't want to get well. I just like hanging out by the pool, soaking in the rays, working on my tan. No, I don't want to get well. But he's not snarky, is he? He's not snarky at all. Verse 7. He says, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Have you ever felt like this guy? Ever felt like this guy? It feels like your prayers maybe are bouncing off the ceiling. You go to the doctors. Your doctors aren't helping you. You still feel just as bad as you did before you spent ten grand on doctors and medicine that didn't work. You go to apply for a job and you think you've got it. You're almost there. Someone else always jumps in front of you and takes that job from you and you're left jobless. Ever felt that way? This man was dealing with all these emotions. Seemed like he was last in line when it came to handing out luck. Here in John 5 at the house of mercy and grace sits a crippled man who feels as if he never will receive mercy or grace. For years, he had held on to the false hope that he would one day swim with angels. But he soon discovers there's something infinitely better than swimming with angels, and that's standing with Jesus. Amen? After the crippled man aired his complaint in verse 7, Jesus didn't proceed to take him down into the water. There was no need. This man didn't need water. This man didn't need bubbles in the water. This man didn't even need to swim with angels. All he needed was Jesus. That's all he needed. He just needed Jesus. In verse 8, the Lamb of God, the great physician, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, said to him, Get up! Pick up your mat and walk! And in verse 9, we read, At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. So, how was this man healed? He was healed by the spoken word of Jesus Christ, was he not? I love how Warren Wearsby puts it. He writes, The Lord healed him through the power of his spoken word. He commanded the man to do the very thing he was unable to do, but in his command was the power of fulfillment. The cure was immediate and certainly some of the many people at the pool must have witnessed it. I want you to let these insightful words sink deeply into your mind and heart today. In his command was the power of fulfillment. Say that with me. In his command was the power of fulfillment. One more time. In his command was the power of fulfillment. Bottom line, if Jesus gives you a command, He will always give you the power to carry out that command. Isn't that reassuring? Jesus will never give you a command that He doesn't give you the wherewithal to obey. He'll never never give you a command that you cannot sufficiently and successfully obey with God's help. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What a wonderful, mighty God we serve. And so, that's why the great hymn writer wrote those words to that hymn, Trust and Obey. Remember that song? When we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. So simple. Trust and obey. Why? Because if he's given you a command, he will give you the ability to successfully obey that command. This man could not walk. A few seconds earlier, he could not physically do what Jesus tells him to do. You want to get healed? Stand and walk. There must have been some part of that guy that was thinking, don't you think I've tried for 38 years? I can't stand and walk. But in his command was the power to walk. After 38 years of being paralyzed, this crippled man's legs were recreated. At the word of Jesus, his muscles and his tendons regrew. His leg bones were strengthened. His balance was restored so that he could do much more than just stand. He could walk. He could run. He could jump. He could dance for joy. I wish I could have been there. Would have been awesome. As we read the first half of verse 9, we begin to celebrate, but... The gospel writer John doesn't even give us a full verse to celebrate. Notice what he says halfway through verse 9. He reigns on our parade by highlighting what happens next. He writes, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, in verse 9, John shares the good news that at once the man who was cured was able to pick up his mat and walk. And then John basically says, Oh, by the way, Forgot to mention, the day on which Jesus did this healing was Shabbat. It was a Sabbath day. And then John tells us how the naysayers, the wet blankets, responded. The Jewish leaders didn't take too kindly to anyone doing anything that even resembled work on the Sabbath day. So let's cut to the chase and ask two very important questions. Question number one, did Jesus break any of God the Father's Sabbath laws By healing this man on the Sabbath. The second question, did this man who was healed break any of God's Old Testament laws about the Sabbath? And the answer to both questions is, no, they didn't. Here's how the Sabbath day commandment reads in Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 14. Deuteronomy 5 is one of the two places in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's one of the two places you can read the Ten Commandments. You can see it in Exodus 20 and see it again here in Deuteronomy 5. Here's how the fourth commandment reads. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. And there's a couple other Old Testament scriptures to keep in mind. If you go to Jeremiah 17.21 and Nehemiah 13.19, It specifically talks about carrying burdens or loads on the Sabbath day. But in Jeremiah and Nehemiah, they're making it clear that God doesn't want you to carry your toolbox on the Sabbath day to do your normal job you would do Monday through Saturday. Excuse me, Sunday through through Friday. And also, God didn't want you carrying your merchandise on the Sabbath if you were a vendor of some sort, if you were a merchant. God didn't want those things carried. He's certainly not talking about someone carrying their bed mat after having been miraculously healed by God. But during the period of time, the few hundred years leading up to Jesus' birth, the Jewish rabbis, as many of you know, had added hundreds of extra traditions and laws to God's Old Testament law. We a lot of times will call these the traditions of men. That's what Jesus called them in the Gospels. The traditions of men were heaped on top of the Old Testament commands. And so the question would be, did Jesus break any of the traditions of the Jews by doing what he did here in John 5? The answer is, yes, he did. And did the man who was carrying his mat break any of the traditions of the Jewish leaders? And similarly, the answer is yes. You see, God had created the Sabbath day as a gift to His followers, and He intended it to be the best day of the week, the day to rest from our day-to-day work, to gather and worship God with our families, to serve Him and others. But the Jewish leaders had taken the gift of the Sabbath day and had twisted it into a burden. They made the Sabbath day into the worst day of the week. And that's something for us as Christians to think about. Sunday should be the best day of the week. Praise God, we get to come together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The rest of the week, we've got family and friends that think we're nuts for trusting in Jesus. We talked about this last week. We have family and friends that think we are idiots for believing that the Word of God is true. All of it. We've got friends and family that think that the morality that is espoused by the New Testament is so old-fashioned, so outdated, so oppressive at times. And so it's a blessing to come together with other Christians, other believers, who believe the Word of God also. Amen? It's a blessing to come together with other Christians and worship the Lord our God in spirit and in truth. It's a blessing to come and get fed. It's a blessing to come and serve. It's a blessing to come and give. It's a blessing to take communion. The Word of God, I think, makes it very clear that the day we set aside to worship the Lord our God should be the best day of the week. But the Jewish leaders had made it so oppressive. They turned the Sabbath day into the worst day of the week, the most burdensome day of the week. In fact, they added to God's simple Sabbath day command 39 different classifications of work that they said were unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, I don't have time to go through all of these, but I'll mention a few. A a few of these make sense because there were a lot of farmers back then, a lot of merchants. So they had certain ones of these 39, like uh, no plowing on the Sabbath day, no planting, no building on the Sabbath day. Those make sense, right? That involves manual labor, hard work. You shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath day. But some of these others are a little bit wacky. No burning on the Sabbath day. You couldn't make a fire to cook cook a meal. You had to cook it the day before. You couldn't light a fire on the Sabbath. You couldn't extinguish on the Sabbath. So I suppose if your house is on fire, you just let it burn if it's a Sabbath day, because you know the, the rabbis say I, I can't extinguish the fire. That's unlawful. They said no writing on the sabbath couldn't write you couldn't erase something that you had written on the sabbath day you couldn't wash you couldn't tie knots you couldn't untie knots on the sabbath day sounds rather nitpicky doesn't it ever been to a church that came across pretty nitpicky with all the extra rules they added to god's rules many churches do that today they add rules that aren't there in the bible you're looking for this where does it say i can't ever go to the movie theater what was that Man, I like my Marlboros. Where does it say that in Scripture? Now, I don't advocate smoking, but it doesn't say it in the Word of God. So I can't make a thou shalt not with it either. And so they added all these extras. And one of those 39 categories was carrying. Thou shalt not carry anything on the Sabbath day. Now, catch this. Verse 10, they say, it is the Sabbath day. The law forbids you to carry your mat. The truth is the law did not forbid that man from carrying his mat. But the traditions of the elders did. And William Barclay explains the nitpickiness that these Jewish rabbis and teachers of the law exercised. I think he explains it so well. Catch this. I'll put it on the screen for you here, too. The rabbis of Jesus' day solemnly argued that a man was sinning, catch this, if he carried a needle in his robe on the Sabbath day. How dare you carry a needle in your robe? You can't do it. They even argued as to whether you could wear your false teeth or your artificial leg on the Sabbath day. Anybody have their dentures? No, I'm just kidding. You couldn't wear your dentures, some would say. You couldn't wear your artificial leg They were quite clear that any kind of lapel pin could not be worn on the Sabbath. To them, all this petty detail was a matter of life and death. And certainly this man was breaking the rabbinic law by carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. In verse 11, the healed man responds to his accusers. He says, well, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Now, let me ask you, if a former paraplegic said to you what this man says to the rabbis here in verse 11, Which of the two parts of his statement would you focus on? Part A, I for 38 years was a paraplegic and my legs didn't work and a man just healed me 10 minutes ago. Would you focus on that or would you focus on the second part? I'm carrying my sleeping bag. Obviously the first part, what? Are you serious? 38 years? What do the Jewish leaders focus on? They're focusing on Part B. They're focusing on the sleeping bag. How crazy is that? These religious leaders focus. Look at verse 12. Who is this fellow? Who told you to pick it up and walk? What a bunch of narrow-minded. Imagine, it's 2 a.m., you're in a dead sleep, and all of a sudden, you're awakened by a noise. And you quickly realize it's the sound of a lawnmower. And you're like, what? And you get out of bed and you walk down the hallway. You walk out your front door onto your front porch and you can't believe it. Your next door neighbor is mowing your yard. And what really surprises you is the fact that it's your next door neighbor who's been in a wheelchair for 38 years. What would your first reaction be to your next door neighbor doing that? And he's not just mowing the the lawn there, man. He's skipping and he's dancing and he's all over your front yard. Man, he's excited. <laughs> he's he's dancing. What was your uh, what would be your first response? Would you say, "Whoa, Billy, what happened? Where's your wheelchair? How'd you get out of your wheelchair?" Or would you say, "What are you doing at this time of the night? Get off my lawn." What would you say to him? Hopefully, it would be the first of the. Who cares what time of night it is? I want to hear about the miracle. But not these religious leaders. They couldn't care less about the miracle. They want to focus on the infraction. Be very careful that you don't make the same mistake that the religious leaders make here in John 5. They were so entrenched in their legalism that they completely flushed grace down the toilet. They were staring an earth-shattering miracle right in the face and all they could see was an out-of-place sleeping bag. How sad. In verse 14, Jesus finds the healed man in the temple courts. After the healing, Jesus had slipped away so quickly, the man didn't even know Jesus' name. And Jesus gives the man this simple command, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, if you watch the entire episode of Chosen that I just shared you a, a clip from a few minutes ago, if you watch the whole episode, you'll find that earlier in the episode, they go back in time 38 years. And they show this crippled man as a boy climbing a tree. And he slips, falls out of the tree. And in the next scene you realize he severed his spinal cord and he's a paraplegic. Which he remains for the next 38 years. And so they portray this as an accident that happened to this boy that 38 years later at the temple there at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus heals. But if you look at verse 14 here, it's led many scholars to a different conclusion about what had happened to this man who was crippled. Notice again verse 14. See you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. See, many Bible scholars believe that that is implying that Jesus knew something that everyone else didn't know around this man. That somehow as he was sinning 38 years later, he had done something in his sin, that led to his physical injury. Perhaps he, in a drunken stupor, had fallen down the stairs. Perhaps he had been flirting with the wrong lady. And her husband or her father beat this man to within an inch of his life. There seems to be an implication in verse 14 that something had happened because don't you kind of sense that in Jesus' words? Stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. In other words, I know how you became crippled. I know what you did. Don't do it again. Stop sinning or something far worse may happen to you. Being physically crippled in this life is bad, but being spiritually crippled in eternity is far worse. So much the same as he says to the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. He says, where are your accusers? They're not here, are they? Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He seems to be saying a similar thing to this man who he has just healed. In verse 16, we read that the Jewish leaders persecuted Jesus. In verse 17, Jesus responds by saying, My Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. And then verse 18, they ramp up their charges and their accusations a bit. And try even harder to find a way to kill Jesus. Now you look at what Jesus says in verse 17. He's simply saying God is always at work and I'm going to be at work too. But he's not just saying that, is he? Notice he says, my father is always at work. If he had just said God is always at work, so I'm going to work too. They would have been ticked off, but they wouldn't be as ticked off as they are here. The reason they are so upset is because they clearly know what Jesus is saying. By calling Jesus, my father, he was claiming to be the son of God. Very clearly, they didn't miss that clear implication there. He's claiming to be the son of God and claiming to be on the same level as God. And so they intensify their efforts to kill him. Well, I want to share with you three life lessons that I think we can pull from this passage today. We'll go through these rather quickly. Life lesson number one. Just like in Jesus' day, hurting people are searching for a house of mercy and grace. Amen? Could you read that with me? Just like in Jesus' day, hurting people are searching for a house of mercy and grace. One more time. Just like in Jesus' day, hurting people are searching for a house of mercy and grace. Our community is filled with hurting people in need of the grace and mercy of God. Amen? filled with them. And as Jesus' followers, we have what they so desperately need. This church building should always be a house of mercy and grace. It's a house of prayer. It's a house of preaching. It's a house we hope and pray. to have some great children's ministries. Some great hospitality. Many great things. But it should also be a house of mercy and grace. Every week there are people who walk through that door who are dealing with some sort of sickness, some sort of diagnosis. People walk through that door dealing with anxiety or depression. Some people have the physical issues they're dealing with. Some have those emotional issues. Every week, people walk through the door dealing with spiritual issues. They've either either never, never been saved, or maybe they were saved years ago, but have backslidden and moved away from the Lord, and they need the grace and mercy of Christ. And you and I have what they so desperately need You and I who follow Jesus are called to offer them kindness and mercy and grace. So make sure you're doing your part to communicate loud and clear that this is a place of mercy and grace. No matter who's coming, no matter what they're wearing, no matter how they look, no matter how war-torn and battle-scarred they may appear, make sure they know as they interact with you, that this is a place of mercy and grace. Life lesson number two. Just like in Jesus' day, there is healing in the house of mercy and grace. Amen? Amen. Read that with me. Just like in Jesus' day, there is healing in the house of mercy and grace. I'm not convinced you believe it, so say it like you believe it. Just like in Jesus' day, there is healing in the house of mercy and grace. Think about this. The same Jesus who healed the crippled man here in John 5 is in this room right now. Isn't that cool? He's in this room right now and his power that was available to heal back then is available to heal right now. Uh, Many of you have heard me mention Paul McLean's name before. Paul is the owner of this building. He's a Christian man, very kind man. He's given us a, a good price on renting this building each month and... Paul owns this building and his brother-in-law is the pastor of God's House Church that met here for two years before we came in starting on Easter. And so there the pastor of God's House and Paul were working together to do ministry in this building for a couple years. We found out three months ago on the final day of the school year that Paul's daughter, his 11-year-old daughter Parker, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. An 11-year-old with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and it was the equivalent of a stage 4. She was given a PET scan, and her dad describes it this way. He says, it was like her whole middle part of her body was lit up like a Christmas tree. From her neck all the way down past her hips and even into her lower back, there was cancer everywhere. Said she was lit up like a Christmas tree. So about two months ago, they began some aggressive chemo treatments to try to kill this cancer. We as a church began praying. We've had her on our prayer list for several months and we prayed through the summer and God's house and many other Christians and churches around the world were praying for little Parker. And so we were praying and praying and praying. She went back a month and a half ago for her follow-up PET scan. And her dad, Paul, was looking at the PET scan on the screen and he asked the doctor, can you explain what's going on? I don't see anything. And the doctor responded, that's because nothing's there. Paul asked, is that normal? doctor said, no, it's not normal. It's a miracle. Throughout this summer with the aggressive chemo treatments, she didn't lose any hair. She barely dealt with any nausea. She pretty much had a normal summer as she's going through chemo. That's unheard of. To have that cancer at that stage disappear in two months is unheard of. And in the doctor's own words, it was a miracle. And God did it for Parker and he still does it today in so many lives of his people around the world. Perhaps today is the day for some of you to experience your healing. Maybe it is a physical healing. But maybe it's an emotional healing from anxiety or depression. Maybe it's a healing from your addiction or maybe it's a spiritual healing. Maybe you know you need Jesus Christ. You're not right with God and you need to get right with Him today. Next week is Decision Sunday. We hope you'll make that decision today or next week and get baptized next week. shouldn't be raining, hopefully. Some of you here need to rededicate your life to Christ. Whatever that decision may be, I encourage you to make it. Maybe it's your day to be healed at the house of mercy. But if it's not, keep coming back to the house of mercy your healing may not come today but we believe in faith it's coming someday amen Amen. either here on earth or in eternity your healing is coming finally life lesson number three just like in jesus's day there are wet blankets in the house of mercy and grace that's true isn't it i won't make you repeat that one after me but it's true I suppose that we shouldn't be too surprised that the Jewish leaders were ignoring the miracle and focusing on the infraction because, honestly, you and I sometimes do the same thing. God is moving in a service and people are coming for prayer and lives are being touched and people are wanting to get saved or wanting to get baptized and we get all upset because the service is running a little too long. Sad. Sometimes God is moving through the worship and goes a little longer than we wanted. Maybe God is touching someone who's been hurting, dealing with cancer or illness or a broken marriage. And we get a little miffed because someone sat in our favorite seat. Sometimes we have a temptation to be wet blankets in the house of mercy and grace. And I want to encourage you, as God does what He does so well in this place, to open blind eyes To soften hard hearts, to change lost and dying people for eternity. Let's be flexible. Let's not sweat the small stuff. Let's pray. Let's be kind. Let's extend mercy and grace to everyone who ever walks through that door. And let's make sure that everyone knows who comes into this place that there is healing. And there is forgiveness and there is mercy and grace here in the house of mercy and grace. God did it then and God's still doing it today. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you and praise you for the opportunities you give us to come into the house of mercy and grace. Lord, I've already been saved. As far as I know, I'm not dealing with cancer. As far as I know, Lord, I don't have some huge issue on my plate right now, but nonetheless, I still myself need mercy and grace. We all do. So, Lord, I pray that you would work in us and through us to do what you do so well. Thank you, Jesus, for transforming Bethesda. It was called the House of Mercy and Grace, but... That was a big embellishment. It really didn't have much mercy and grace going on in there until you walked onto the pool deck. And I pray, O God, that those that come into this place who experience very little grace and mercy in their everyday lives would experience it here. We don't want to excuse sin. We don't want to turn a blind eye to sin but we want to humbly reach out to those that are hurting in their sin. Usher them to the Savior and see their lives transformed by Your grace and mercy. I pray if there's anyone here, Lord, who needs You as Lord and Savior, that they would put You in charge of their life today, coming to You saying, Heavenly Father, I come to You in Jesus' name. Please forgive me. Please wash my sins away. Give me the mercy and grace that I need. Come into my life. And I promise to follow you from this point forward and obey your commands with your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you're here today and you need prayer of any kind, we'd love to pray with you. Uh, Allison, Carol, I'm going to ask that you two, if you'd be up here to pray, I'll be up here as well. Roy's available. If anyone needs prayer, if you have a decision to make for Christ, you come as we have this time of invitation.